Well, welcome to the Christian Church of Festus Park. We're disciples of Jesus, build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. I'm Pastor Ed. It's great to have you today. Uh, before we get to the message, of course, like we do every week, I'd like to take out your bulletin. That's a great place to take notes, of course. It's a good time to do that. But also, there's that wonderful green connection card, and I'd like to point your attention to that so you could pull that out and fill it out for me. And then at the end of the message, uh, you could drop that in the offering basket for me. Uh, along with the tithes and gifts. I would really appreciate that. And uh, just to know you're here, of course, there's that prayer request portion on there. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. So let me know how to pray. And then uh, you can drop that in the offering basket. If you're a gift, this, uh, you're, you're a guest. You are a gift. If you are a guest here this morning, you are a gift to us. And uh, we're glad to have you here today. And we just invite you to fill whatever you feel comfortable uh, filling out on that connection card and along with everyone else. You could drop that in the offering basket. And, and as you uh, are preparing to, for that, uh, just a couple small things I want to point out. We have, uh, we're a church, we are a family, and uh, one of the things we get to do as a church family is we have a membership meeting. So if you're a member of the church, uh, we're going to have our next membership meeting, which we do annually. It's going to be at the very end of February. It's the last Sunday in February. Uh, I invite you to join us for that. If you're a member, we could talk about the officers in the church, but also the what God has done this past year, cast the vision for what God's going to be doing with us this whole next year. And to make it so much better, I think uh, uh, one of our, Vic UI had a great idea last year. She said, what if we just did one service that week and then had a fellowship meal before the uh, annual meeting and then everyone would have blood sugar and it'd be great. So we said, that's an awesome idea. So we're going to be having one service on that Sunday and then a fellowship meal. Everyone's welcome to join and then for members to stay after that. So mark that in your calendars. Another thing uh, that I want to um, make you guys aware of, and I know that Kathy is here, but the Ash family has just been going through a lot. Uh, we want to praise God that Brad is still with us and he's doing really well and he's, he's open to receiving uh, guests now. He's down in Loveland at a, at a center. Uh, just God has just answered our prayers there. I want to thank you for praying. Now, the church family, we don't just want to just cover just the surface things. I know that the actually there's a lot of other things that have kind of hit uh, around the same thing. Of course, with uh, Maddie and things uh, that's been a lot. And, and of course, Kathy being very, very busy. And this is a big time for her. The taxes. It, as a church family, we want to surround those that are, that are struggling. And I tell you what, we want to support the, the Ash family. So one of the things that uh, we've done is we put onto our website a link to the uh, a Take Them a Meal. And I think that would be a very helpful thing to bring your best food and it's on your connection card, or it's on that yellow sheet that's in there. I want to say it from the pulpit because I want you guys to hear it. Do it. Bring them a meal. And as you do, pray for them. The second thing uh, we'd like to do is we're going to start. You remember we put a, got to put a deck onto the Jarosis, uh, um home? Well, one of the things we want to do is to be able to help the Ash family by fixing their roof. And uh, that's going to really help them a lot in so, so many ways. And so we're going to start raising funds for that uh, we, uh, to... We're getting uh, estimates as to what the cost is going to be. We've got uh, somebody who said they can give us materials at cost and all that's going to help. Uh, this is going to be a very big project, probably the largest thing our church has ever done um, as far as a service thing, but it's one way that we can show love in a very real and practical way. So this is what we're going to need. We need money and we need workers, right? Both. And I'd like to do this kind of the beginning of spring or summer, somewhere there where it's going to be a good time for it. So this is, if you want to make a donation towards that, what I'd like you to do is pray about it, but also... You make a donation and put it to special projects, and I'm going to be talking about this. We'll take pictures and all those things, but uh, I know it's going to be thousands and thousands of dollars. So make sure you make a, uh, your donation and you put on your connection card uh, or in a connection card, that envelope, the offering envelope that's in there. Uh, you can write on there and designate whatever you'd like to, to go towards that roof. 100% of that funds is going to go to help out the Ash family, uh, helping us put a roof on their house, and uh, that would be a really, very practical way of demonstrating love and support. And so... Um, uh, please uh, 
and engage with us in that. And then, of course, we want to continue to pray for them because isn't it great that we're part of a church family? None of us is in it alone. And it's so important we all need one. Now, today, uh, we talk about it being family. One of the things you notice about family is that uh, the people that you live with are wonderful. You love them, but they're also stinkers, <laughs> right? And so I want you to think about this first. Before I get to the stinker portion, remember, remember when we talked a couple weeks ago, Psalm 8, where, where, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then how when we look at the stars, it's amazing that he would love us. And then God reminds us, no, no, no. The stars shouldn't make you look small, but they should make you feel tall. Because you look at all of creation, God made that so that we could rule over it. And so when I look at the majesty of the mountains, I don't feel small, but actually so much larger than I could ever possibly understand that God has made us very big. You matter and he loves you deeply and he created you for great things. Okay, I want you to hold on to that. Because you are wonderful and God loves you and you are, you are an amazing thing. You are an amazing person and you are valuable and good. You're also a stinker. And you're part of God's family. And every one of us, every person, we have the capacity for such greatness, but we also have the capacity for such wickedness and awful things. In fact, if you look at the news and you see the problems that are happening, like we say the world is a mess. Whose fault is that? Well, it's not our dogs and cats' fault. I mean, we can't like, look at Washington and all the corruption there and be like, well, if the president's dog was just a good boy. Right? The reason the world is a mess isn't because of, of other things. It's not because you know, we can't you know, claim that, well, you know, I would have been a nicer person if it wasn't for climate change. We can't blame the problems in this world on exterior things, although we sometimes try. I even had a person tell me this, and this is an actual quote, they, when I caught them in a lie, and there's a friend of mine, and they said, well, Aaron, I'm a Gemini, of course I'm two-faced. Literal thing, blame the stars, <laughs> right? But the reality is the reason that we have problems in our homes and our lives and other things isn't because our animals are bad or because it's, or it's because we have problems, in fact, I think uh, that the English language almost got it right when it called us misters and, and uh, misses, but I think it'd be more accurate to say that we were messers and messes, right? And we recognize that there's a problem in this world, and the problem is in us. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What do you do with that? Because every one of us knows we all have regrets. We've all done things that we're not proud of. That's why communion, right? That's why we have to address that. But our culture doesn't really know how to address it very well. Our world, as far as people, if we don't handle that guilt correctly, we don't handle the brokenness correctly, then incorrect things happen. And the brokenness just gets worse. And you look at popular culture, and last week I tried with a reference that half of you didn't know. Eminem is a rapper. He's a white rapper. <laughs> who can rhyme really well. Okay, so here's a reference that hopefully you will. I, 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 I scoured all the different things as a reference that maybe you might get. Britney Spears, you all know who she is? Okay, the somewhere in the middle. She tried to sing a song about being sorry and it came out as, oops, I did it again. I think that's more of our heart as a culture. And more of our heart as people like, oh, I made a mistake, but oh, I did it again. Oops, oh well, big deal, not a bad deal, right? I don't know if we know how to say I'm sorry and how to change, but I'm glad to tell you that Scripture has a much better song in it than Oops, I Did It Again. 
It has a, a much deeper and profound way of, of dealing with guilt so that we can move ahead in a way that doesn't create bigger messes. And that's the psalm we get to talk about today. But before we do our anchor verse, which we'll actually be talking about next week, Psalm 100, verse 5. That's a happy psalm. And I really hope over these last four weeks that this psalm is something that you've clung to that's really been an anchor for your spirit. This amazing truth for the Lord is good. Even when I'm a mess, even when I'm broken, God is not. God is good all the time. All the time God is good. And get this, and his love endures forever. We haven't reached the end of it yet. And so it goes on and says, faithfulness continues through all generations, even now. So even to the messers and the messes amongst us, God is still good and his faithfulness to you is still enduring. And he's the one that helped clean us up. So if you haven't had a chance or haven't taken time to really meditate on it, to, to memorize that, and to, to take that truth that's so encouraging and so helpful, let me tell you, encourage you, take some time now to do that. It's on your connection card. It's that green. It's, it's, we perforate it so you could take that with you. Memorize it. Think about it. Because here's a truth that you need. If we rely on ourselves, we fall short. But I'll tell you what, you can rely on God because he is perfect. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. Now as you have that, why don't you turn to Psalm 51, often called the Psalm of Psalms. This is on the, the, the top one hit list for Psalms. If you want to say a Psalm that has transformed Christian doctrine, has resonated people's hearts throughout the years more than any other, it's this one. In fact, as I studied the sermons, like on Mondays is my day of study, and I love doing when I was studying this, one of the things I usually I like to do is I read the psalm, I, I, I take it apart, and after I've done all of my exegetical work on it, I like to then go through church history. And first I start with what they call the Antonician Fathers, which are the earliest church writings that we have. And then I work my way through church history and kind of see how the, that particular passage has been treated throughout church ages, how the doctrine has gone through it. I couldn't get through all of it because the, this particular psalm has been spoken about and taught on more than I would think any other psalm. It's an amazing psalm. Why? Because it resonates with us. It meets us right where we are at. And as you go to it, if you, you've turned to Psalm 51, you're going to notice at the very top, there's before verse 1, there's some information. And it says here, this is for the director of music. This is a song. It's designed to be a song. It's poetry that's put to a melody so it can resonate in our spirits and so we can keep it with us. It's like uh, uh, you've ever listened to music on, on the radio and it just, it just speaks to you, it just hits different. It's, like, it's just amazing. That's what this was designed to do. It was to meld not with just your mind, with your very soul. And there's poetry. And to understand the psalm as we listen to what the heart is. And then it also says it's a song of David which really matters because especially as it comes next, it says when David was caught by Nathaniel of, of, of Nathan of having an affair with a Bathsheba. That when he was, uh, and so this is a time in, in David's life, and if you're like, what was that? Well, we'll talk about it. But there's a time in David's life when he was really broken. And what does David do in that moment of brokenness? Well, he turns to music to pour his heart out to his God. And this is a, a window into that moment of, of despair, of brokenness. It resonates with us like a sad song. 
And I don't know if you've ever had those moments. You're kind of going through a hard time in life, and the last thing you want to listen to is something upbeat. It just doesn't resonate with where your soul is at right now. Sometimes we need a sad song. Sometimes we need something to come down to exactly where we are, and it just allows us to pour ourselves out with it. And I'll tell you, here's a sad song for all of us, but a deep song and a beautiful song, a cathartic song, but also at the end, a very hopeful song. That's what this is. So let's go down to the history of what was happening when the song was written. Well, King David, pretty good dude, man after God's own heart, right? The best king of, of the United Kingdom. We look back to him. He's uh, part of, you know, our Lord and Savior's lineage, your heritage like that. He's got all kinds of wonderful blessings that, that God put upon him because of who he was. He started as a shepherd, ended up as a king, did all kinds of wonderful things for the kingdom, military genius, also a poet, a warrior poet, just an awesome dude. And yet there was a one time in his life where he messed up so catastrophically that it, it kind of takes us back because he's the last person in the world that you would think that would mess up. Right? And we think about how righteous he was, even as Saul, Saul was chasing him throughout the wilderness, and he had the opportunity in this place called En Gedi to go and to kill King Saul and take the throne. He chose to be faithful to his God and not, and just take a little part of the, Saul's garment so he could show him, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Here's a guy who had great self-control, great compassion, great faithfulness to the Lord, and yet, after he had success... We find that he fails. So here's the story. Already showed and proved himself to be an amazing king, had the entire kingdom under his control, uh, and had generals now and warriors. Everybody looked up to him. He had a palace, right? And um, it came to be about springtime when, they, uh, when the kings go out to war, because clearly that's what kings do at that particular time. It's on their schedule. It's going to do this next spring. Well, got to go to war. And that's when he was supposed to go out there. But he didn't have to because he was such a great military leader. He was such a great king. Didn't have to go out to war. He had all of his wealth and all that kind of stuff. So he sent the other kings out or the other generals out to go fight for him, enjoying the luxury of his palace and all of the beautiful things that are there. And one day he's in his palace and he's enjoying life. And he looks out the window. And back then they bathed differently. They didn't have hot water heaters, right? Which could explain a lot about history, right? No wonder they're so grumpy. Because a hot shower is just soothing. But they didn't have that. So what would happen is you would go up to your roof, which you'd have some privacy because they didn't have a lot of big stuff. And, and then you'd go on top of your house, and then you would pour olive oil on yourself, and you'd scrape off all the stink, right? And you take a bath. Well, one day he's sitting up there, and guess what? Uh, Jerusalem, if you ever notice, is king, the city of David's on a big old hill. And the palace is at the top. You know, on his roof, he could look down and see other tops of roofs. Because kings get to look down on people. That's one of the benefits of being king. And he's up there, and he's enjoying, he looks out his window, and he sees this beautiful woman that's married to one of his generals, a friend, and she's taking a bath, pouring oil on herself and scraping it off. And he says, I am attracted to that. So this wonderful king had a moment of temptation and couldn't get out of his mind, and he calls Bathsheba up to the palace, and he commits adultery with her, and she becomes pregnant. Now, to be aware that she was pregnant probably took a little while. But once he became aware that she was pregnant, he's realized he wasn't convicted of his sin, but he was convicted of the consequence. And he thinks, how am I going to fix this? And he did what so many of us do. He says, well, sin got me into this problem, so clearly sin is going to get me out of this problem. 
right? And so I did this and it was wrong, and I know that God's not going to help me because what I did was wrong, so I'm not going to turn to God. I've got to figure out on my own how I'm going to get out of this. So he concocts a plan in his mind. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll bring my good friend Uriah, the, the general, I'm going to bring him back home, and then I'm going to sit under the guise of I want him to give me a report as to what's happening in the battle that I'm not at. And then when he's home, he'll go home and sleep with his wife, and then she'll think that my child is his child, and then no one will be the wiser. Brilliant idea. Brings Uriah, but Uriah doesn't, uh, he doesn't fall for it. He's too loyal. He gets the, the report from, from uh, Uriah, gets the report to, to King David, and, and then uh, and David says, all right, well, go, go home to your wife. Spend some time with her before you go back to the, to the battlegrounds. And Uriah's like, my, my, my men are away from their wives. Last thing I'm going to do is be unfaithful to my men who are serving under me. I'll just stay here on your couch. And David's like, Pfft. so he gets him drunk because it's easier to make drunk people do what you want. And even then, Uriah's like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Oh, you sleep on your couch. <laughs> and he does. So David's like, well, that didn't work, so what am I going to do? And he thinks about it, and he's like, I've got an idea. And he writes a secret note to the other generals, and he rolls it up, and he seals it with wax, and he puts his ring in it so Uriah could peek in there and see what it was. He says, it's a really important top-secret note. You've got to give it to the commander that's out there. Don't look! And inside of that note was, kill Uriah. Send him to the front line, right, and then go away, and then he was going to get a, a rock dropped on his head. So I'm going to murder him. And uh, so Uriah takes his own death warrant to the front lines, he goes to the front, very beginning, the army abandons him, he gets killed. Corruption. It's bad. David killed one of his most loyal soldiers, a friend, and the man whose wife he had committed a, an affair with. So David's like, well, that's not good, but my plan is working perfectly, because now here's this woman, and I can look compassionate if I marry her. Wouldn't it show my soldiers how much I really love them, care for them? Even if they get killed in the battlefield, I'm going to take care of their wives. So he takes Bathsheba, and he marries her, and he brings her into his home, and it looked like he got away with it. It looked like the corruption would be fine. Although, I think the people were kind of aware that something else was going on, right? But it looked like he got away with it. And you almost get the point. She's about a month out from giving birth. She's showing and all this kind of stuff. And people who were bad with math would think, well, that makes sense that he, right? So, yeah, looks like, well, it's good. But then, and all this time, David look, feels in his heart, I got away with it. I did this thing, and I'm sure he could have twisted in his mind what I did was the best for the kingdom, right? If my guys don't think very highly of me, I, I'm doing this for the kingdom, I'm doing it so that, that they'll have confidence in their, their, their king. And I did, I did sin, but luckily my sin got me out of it, and I've restored this. And, and, and it's best for Bathsheba, too, because if it came out, then she should be killed by the law. And, and if not, then at least her child would be considered a, you know, an anathema. So this was the best thing for her and for the child. I mean, sure, he could twist it in his mind. But then God called uh, Nathan, and, and he's a prophet. And I'm pretty sure Nathan kind of knew what was going on because you know how things happen. I mean, even in Estes Park, somebody does something, everybody knows. And you don't think the king had somebody come into his palace, especially this beautiful woman, 
who was his general's wife, came to a private meeting with him. And then not long after, that general just happens to get killed on the battlefield in a most weird way, and people weren't talking about it. I think Nathan was like, hmm. Nathan was like, I, I, Daniel, I think he's like, I think something's wrong here. But he didn't go talk to the king. No, God's Holy Spirit had to speak to him and said, you need to go spend a message to King David. What you think was done in secret wasn't. And I know about it. And I know exactly what you've done. And he does it by giving, Nathaniel does it by giving David a story so that way he doesn't get executed right away. And he says, there's this guy who's got, he's a wealthy man, he's got all these sheep. And then there's this other guy who's a poor shepherd and only has one sheep and he cares for it and he loves it and all that. And one day the, the rich shepherd, the rich man says, I, you know what, I want that one sheep that I don't have. And so he plots a way of killing that guy so he can get that one sheep. And David's like, I can't believe this happened in my kingdom. Go and get that guy. He should die for his sin. And then Daniel's like, well, that's you. And he knew it. His heart was crushed. Because he recognized that he could trick other people, but he can't fool God. And the guilt that he had was absolutely there. And he could have twisted things to make it right in his own mind, but they knew they weren't, wasn't right. And he had guilt. How was he going to respond? That's when the psalm was written. That's when the psalm was written. And the psalm is written and has three major movements. That, that when David is, is pouring his heart out to God in guilt and he's waiting God's response, he, 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 he writes out his, just his, his brokenness. He recognizes he's been exposed and he doesn't like what he sees inside of him. And it has got three movements. It's kind of like the Bohemian Rhapsody, right? That's kind of like it's got one part and then changes another part and another part. Very much that way. And each one has its own personality, and each one moves us to the next. And the first thing that David begins with is this, confession. Another way is putting, he says, please forgive me, for I'm guilty. See, David begins by ad admitting his guilt. That's the very first, that's beginning. He didn't, ex he didn't excuse his guilt. Not, he didn't soften the blow. Lord, you know how beautiful you made that woman. No. Nope. Lord, this is what I've done. And he deals with his depravity head on. And he uses poetic imagery throughout this to really express his deep sorrow and guilt. And this is how it begins. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin." For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time of my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. What a beautiful confession. You know, he begins with, he recognized he was caught and he didn't make excuses. He just comes out and says it, yeah, guilty. Which is one of the things that we often get wrong, but David got right in this. He's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, 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 I've messed up. And there's no way for me to make it right on my own. And he uses three terms for how he messed up theologically, which are important to us. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. 
which remember, Hebrews like to rhyme with ideas, but each one of these is actually, it, it builds on the others. So sin, which most of us think is the worst because we recognize that the wage of sin is death, right? That's, so if we sin, we, uh, we have God's wrath. It, it's sin is, is, a, is a bad thing. It's, and so, but he begins there. Sin is a more broad term. Sin means to miss the mark. It's like if you're shooting at a target and you miss the target. And what he's saying, I know you just missed a target, I was shooting at the wrong target. See, sin is it's really, at its core, it's a disqualifier. It's kind of like if you're going to an archery competition and you're supposed to hit you know, a bullseye in order to be qualified to, to shoot in the competition, and then you shoot at the wrong target entirely, disqualified. You don't even get to play. That's what sin is. It's a disqualifier. We don't even get to be in God's kingdom if we sin. It's a disqualifier entirely. We don't measure up. We don't rise up to God's standards. Why? Uh, even, and Paul talks about it. He says, for you know, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Right? All of us. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah talks about that too. Everybody. We miss. We miss the mark. We are disqualified from being in God's presence. We do not have righteousness. Sin is a disqualifier. And he says, God, I'm disqualified. I was your righteous king, and, and one year had the, but I've been disqualified, so I have this sin. I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy to begin with. But he goes on with that, and the next level of intensity is not just sin. He goes and describes it as iniquity. See, not inic all iniquity is sin. All iniquity is a disqualifier, but not all sin is iniquity. See, iniquity is, is when we twist something. It's a perversion. It's kind of like, like you think of equity like an equal sign. Inequity is you twist that equal sign. It's like two straight lines, and now you twist it. So like, uh, it'd be like two plus two equals four, equal. And inequity is you like, but you have five, right? You have one, two, three, four, five, and you have two plus two is four, and then you twist that equal sign down so two plus two equals five. It's a twisting, a perversion of truth. See, inequity is when we fall into, uh, to happen in the Garden of Eden, that, that we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now we can create our own standard of right and wrong. What scripture says that people do it was right in their own eyes even though it was wrong in God's eyes. So like scripture says, we call wrong right, good, evil, evil, good, dark, light. We, that's twisting. It's a believing in our spirit that I'm actually doing what is good when actually what I'm doing is bad. Inequity is not the same. And so he's saying, I've done that. I had an affair with, with Bathsheba and then I tried to fix it. I twisted my own thinking to say this is going to be somehow good and it was still bad. And so he recognizes that he has this inequity. There's a willfulness to it. There's a brokenness. It's not just that he fell short. He meant to fall short. He twisted things so he was shooting at the wrong target intentionally. Inequity. And we do it in our lives all kinds of ways. When we twist God's way and we say, well, I know what Scripture says. These are God's standards of morality, but those are so old-fashioned, and we're going to adopt these new standards, inequity. Even if we deeply believe them, that inequity is a disqualifier. And it shows a level of treason against God's way. It's, it's a level of pride that now I get to choose what is right and wrong, not God. But then he goes to the highest level, and he says transgression. Now transgression is this. There's no way I can twist this to make it right. I just know it's wrong, and I still do it anyway. Jesus even says that in the kingdom of God comes, even God's not going to have to convict you of your guilt, your own tongue will do that. We've all done things that we know are wrong, and yet we've still done them. 
And there are levels of transgression when I've disobeyed God purposefully, intentionally, willingly, knowingly. That's transgression. And many of those in Scripture very, are, are very, very clear that are, um, there's no redemption from those. In the Old Covenant, there were things like this, murder. If you murdered someone, you couldn't go bring a bull to the altar of God and then have that bring you into a right relationship with God and the community would accept you back. If you murdered somebody, this is what the law said, you had to be executed. Another one is adultery. If you had committed adultery, it wasn't like you would go to the priest and you would confess your sin and bring a sacrifice and then God would accept that sacrifice and then your guilt would be alleviated and things like that and then you could be rejoin the community. There was no way back from that. Once you committed adultery, the law said you should be executed. Transgression is a serious thing in which the law provided no redemption for other than your death. And David, the king, had committed murder and adultery. There was no way back to God through the law or through his own righteousness. He was disqualified. He had perverted God's justice. He had transgressed against God's perfect law, and he deserved death. And there was nothing that the temple or the priests or anybody else could do about it. He deserved to die. And he had been found guilty. Now, even at that level of transgression, of hopelessness, you don't find David trying to justify himself, talk himself out of it, mitigate. He didn't say, Lord, I've done these things, but come on, I'm just a man. If you didn't make her so beautiful, if you didn't make me so lonely, if you did whatever, whatever, it's really not that bad. And look how I tried to cover for it. Before he had received God's forgiveness, he goes to God and says, I am just broken and I am unworthy and I'm deserving of death. He doesn't blame shift, but notice this. He doesn't appeal to God's law. You owe me forgiveness if I bring you this sacrifice. He says, God, based upon who you are, I'm appealing to you. You're a God who is ever loving. You are good, you are always good, and your love endures through all generations. And I can't help myself, but you're a God who helps the helpless. I'm appealing not to me, and I'm not appealing to the law. I'm appealing to you, God, and your character, and your nature, and your love. I can't save myself. The law, religion can't save me, but you can save me. I don't know how you're going to do it, but please save me. That's desperation. It's also acknowledgement. He begins with confession. He begs God for something that nothing else could give and only the king of glory can give forgiveness. As he goes to that, we see now the song go to the next step. It changes the tune a little bit. And it goes to repentance. It moves to this part that, yes, I have done these things and there's no excuse for it. I'm not going to hide it. It's what I am. And yet, now he says, I'm going to repent. Repentance is a change. It's a change of heart. It's a change of direction. And, and so he says, please cleanse me, for I am unclean. See, he, he recognizes that he is depraved, that there's no excuse for what he's done. He's not going to make one, but he doesn't want to stay that way. He doesn't want to do the Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. Confession, no repentance. I'm going to do it again, again, God. And I'm going to do it again and again, again. But I, won't, I know who you are, so I'm just going to keep coming back to you with cheap grace. No, the heart was, I can't believe how awful I am, and I don't want to be this way. So I can't cleanse me. So 
So, Lord, I'm begging you to change me. Do what I can't do. See, oftentimes people think of repentance as just, I'm, I'm not going to do the bad thing. Here's a bad thing. I'm not doing it anymore. That's repentance. I'm turning away from it. That's, that's part of it. That's the fruit of repentance. Repentance is this. I've been disloyal to my maker. I've been unfaithful to the God that I've been called to be loyal to. I've committed spiritual adultery against him, and now I'm turning my heart back to him. And when my heart is turned back to God and I choose back to faithfulness, then the actions follow. Repentance is about a change of the heart, so much more than a change of action. And you're going to see that in this as he writes. He wants his heart to be made right to turn back to his Lord. He, he writes this here. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or... Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What a beautiful picture. He doesn't say to God, forgive me and I'll do better. He knew that there was brokenness within him. He knew that he wanted to be with Bathsheba. There was something in him that drove him to do it. He recognized there was a point, I can't trust myself. I am so deeply broken, God, I can't. I can't say that I'm going to somehow change me. I need you to change me. Cleansing from the Lord is something that goes deeper than just our actions. And he says, I don't want to just have to grit my teeth to always try to be loyal to you. I want to have my heart restored to you that I would never be unfaithful to you. So my heart's revealed who I really am. I'm unfaithful. I'm sinful. I'm filled with inequity, and I don't want to be this anyway. So cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that they would dip. It had little furs on its, uh, on its leaves, and they would dip it into the water or blood, and then the priests would use it to sprinkle, to, to anoint things, for cleansing. And so he's saying, God, I need your cleansing. That's what he's talking about. It's not like you literally have to go get cleansed with hyssop to be healed. What he's saying is, bring me back to you in a way that only you can. It's by faith that I need to not just be saved, but transformed. And notice how he used three words to talk about his, his brokenness. He starts with sin, and then he, he has that inequity and then transgression. Well, he also has three sins that talk about God's response to them, what he's begging God to do. He says, hide those things. Put them away. Make them so that they're not seen anymore. This is my shame. Out of your mercy, even though I deserve to be exposed for everything I am, please give me mercy in that. Hide those things. Hide, but not only hide them so that where they're not obvious, blot them out. It's like in a, uh, you go to court and, and it's like written that you've done these things and then they didn't have erasers back then. That's new technology. You just take the ink and now you can't read what's under it. Kind of like uh, when the, they take redact documents and they put the black over it, you can't see what's under it. He says, you know what, I, I'm guilty before you in the holy register. I, there's nothing that could take these sins away. I deserve death, so make them go away. And then he says uh, that he wants to have these sins blotted out, 
and then he asked to be restored. Right? And so he had to hide and to blot out sin. And then he's like, create in me. Change me. You said that created me a clean heart. So it's not just about hiding the sin. It's not just about blotting it out, and now I'm not guilty anymore. He says, remake me, transform me, undo the brokenness that is within me. It's an appeal to God to do the, the impossible, the amazing, the majestic. And so then he talks about it in terms of poetically, but, but the consequence of this. He says, don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. What, what is he talking about? This is not like a theological thing about how the Holy Spirit works. There was a guy, a literal man that served on the throne right before him, a guy named Saul. And back then, the Holy Spirit didn't indwell believers because they still had sin. Jesus hadn't come to pay for that yet. So the Holy Spirit would anoint people, rest upon them. Not everybody, but specific people, kings and prophets. And the Holy Spirit would rest upon them and, and would give them the ability and capacity to, to lead God's people. And when Saul had offended God, turned away from God, the Holy Spirit left Saul and, and landed on David. And the kingdom was taken away from Saul. And David pleads from this, I know what I deserve, as a, not just as a person, I, I have a position. And you brought your Holy Spirit to me, and, and my whole purpose in life was to serve you as a king. Please, don't take that away for the sake of the nation, but also for my sake. Don't be done with me, don't toss me aside. I know I'm broken, but I plead that you would change me so I'd be worthy of the calling in which you've given me. But I need to be changed in order for that to happen. And notice that he asked for a willing spirit, right? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. God, I don't want to just follow you because I have to. I don't want to just be righteous because it's something that is, is required so you will give me the kingdom and all those things. I want to want what you want. So change me from my very desires from the heart out. What a beautiful transformation. And it's, the, it's a, such an important part of dealing with guilt. It's not just recognizing that I'm a mess. It's like, I don't want to be a mess anymore. Clean me up. And I'm willing to work with you. Make it happen. And then he looks ahead. Now, he hadn't received God's forgiveness yet. When David wrote this, his wife, still pregnant, Nathaniel's still there, right? Giving him this, like, this is what I've done. David pleads to God, but he doesn't know. The Holy Spirit still might leave him. He's still just appealing to God. But he looks ahead in faith and says, God, I know who you are. And this is, gets to the last part, the last movement that says redemption. See, it matters not just who we are, but whom we are turning to. You know, God could just be a God of justice. He could be what the Muslims say he is. He's completely just. He has a standard. You don't you know, measure up. Boom, you're done. But David turns to someone so much better than that. And he looks ahead of who God is, and he knows God's heart. And he says, you know, you can change me, and I'm looking ahead to the day that I trust by faith that you will. And when you do, please use me, for I am redeemed. And so what, what would forgiveness and that transformation, what would, it, what would repentance look like in his life? This is what he turns to. He says, then I will teach transgressors your way. You notice he talk, starts at the very top now. Not just the sinners, not just those who are inequitable, but the people who absolutely violate your, your way and they do what they know is wrong. The worst of the worst. Because I know I'm no better. This is the king. 
He says, if you do this, I'm not going to hide this. I'm going to use a testimony. I will even go to the transgressors themselves, and I will teach them your ways. I will show them who you are so that sinners will turn back to you. Because clearly, if the worst can turn back to you, all of us can. All the disqualified to be restored. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. He's, he killed his friend. Oh God, you who are my God and Savior, and my tongue will sing all of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, my, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, so I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And notice how he talks about it. Like he knew there was no sacrifice for his sin. And that's why God didn't want a, a sacrifice. In the law, the sacrifice would be him. But he says, how, even better, I'm going to bring my broken heart. And God, I know who you are, and that's what you want. You want my love, you want my loyalty more than anything else. That's going to be my sacrifice. So may it please you then to prosper Zion and to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and the burnt offering as a whole. Then bulls will be offered at your altar. Nothing wrong with religion. Nothing wrong with how God, but he wants your heart, not just your action. And notice how David says there was consequence. He is the king. And when he sinned, the entire nation could be destroyed. And he recognizes this, a, a a redemption for him is not just for him, that God redeems and wants to bless. And so he says, God, when you redeem me, have the fullness of this. May the glory not be for me, but it, may it be for you. And, and may the, the redemption in my life result in faithfulness and blessing in other people's lives. It's not just about me. And remember we talked about the opposite of love is not hate, it's selfishness. And you know, David, he, when in this, he doesn't just say, well, just restore to me my, my joy. But may it be a blessing to others, because my sin hurts others. But God's redemption can help them. Do you see how the turnaround is? That, that we see David in this psalm really go through and really talk about how to respond to guilt. And the first thing he teaches us to do is to confess your wrongs. Like we all have guilt, and we don't oftentimes respond to guilt well. Usually, we make excuses for it, or we try to soften the blow, or we deny it, or we double down. But David shows if you really are guilty, the first thing you do is just confess it. Most of the time, you're not fooling anyone. Like in David's time, I'm sure the gossip columnists were out there. They all knew. They just didn't have the strength, the power to talk to him about it. But more than that, God knows, and you're never going to fool him. The best thing to do is just to confess it. Right? And that's not just between us and God, it's between us and other people. If you've done something wrong, don't excuse it because of their behavior. You did something wrong. Confess it. No excuse. No comparison. No blame shifting. You have done wrong and just own up to it. What's the worst that can happen? You could die. They could kill you. You probably deserve it. But here's the thing, if you don't confess your sin, you're never going to truly live. You're going to be living a life that's constantly just covered in guilt, and there can be no forgiveness if there isn't first confession. Once we say, God, I've done this wrong, he can say, yes, I forgive it. 
Once I've wronged somebody in my life and I say, I'm so sorry I did this to you, then they can say forgiven. But if I just ignore it and I, and I deny it, how can I ever receive a person's forgiveness, much less God's? Just confess. Forgive me. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. Why? Because I'm guilty. I need to be forgiven. As we do that, then here's the second part that's so important. We have to repent from our bad behaviors. I'm turning away from I did this thing that was a sin against you, God, or I've done this thing that was, that was harming this other person that destroyed my relationship with them. I treated you badly. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm committed to not being that way anymore. Repent. Turn from it. Which begins first with the transformation of heart. Not just say I'm not going to go back to those bad behaviors. I did these things because there's somewhere in me I'm selfish. There's somewhere else I was, I was not being loving. I'm going to choose to love you. And because of that, I'm not going to go back to those things. Repent. So start with the change of heart. And if you can't make the change of heart on your own, then do what David said and say, God created me a clean heart. God, I, I'm done feeling bad about these things. I want to not be this way. And you know what God promises? He will give you a new heart. That's the prophecy. That's the promise. Take that heart of stone out of you and replace it with one of flesh. He will rewrite his law, his goodness on your very soul. So turn to God. I then move towards change through your actions. By faith, until you have changed, start taking those steps. Say, God, I know that you're going to change me who I am, but I know what you want, and so I'm going to start doing these things, but I know that you're going to change me, and that's exactly who I want to be. See, both are needed, both, and both take time. You have to have a change of, of your, your heart and a change of your actions. And both of those just take time to really become who you are. So commit to them. So when you mess up, you confess it again, and you recommit to your repentance, and then you also change your behaviors. Like, I'm not going to keep doing this thing that's offensive to God or hurts the people around me. This is a part of forgiveness that our culture has missed almost entirely. And I looked up a bunch of the songs. If you look on Google, the sad songs about being sorry. You can look it up. Most of them are this. Either, I'm sorry, but that's just who I am. So, sorry, not sorry, which was actually a song. Or, I'm so sorry and I don't like the consequences of what I've done. So, please don't make those consequences stick. These are 80s love ballads. I'm a horrible rocker and I do all kinds of bad things, but baby, I need you. You're wonderful, so please don't leave me, even though I'm horrible. Are you going to change? No, that's just who I am. But right, This is a lot of country music, this way. <laughs> right? Change, transform. We are generational, transformational disciple makers. That's who we are. God came to change you. Be changed. You are born again. Let the life of him just work you new from the inside out. Be committed to not being the old way because when we get to the kingdom of God, you're not going to be a stinker anymore. You're not going to be a mess. So start living up to that which he's already attained. Let him transform you. And commit to that not just to him, but to the people in your lives that you hurt. Be transformed. And then the last part is work towards redemption. You may not be there yet. Redemption takes a while. And you can't just say, hey, I'm so sorry I hurt you. 
and then think all things are great. Now, forgiveness is a choice, right? Reconciliation takes time. Reconciliation is, is rebuilding a relationship that was destroyed through a bad action. And it takes time to rebuild that. And so you have to work towards it. If you were caught lying to your friend, you're like, man, I'm sorry you caught me lying. I'm a bad person. I shouldn't have lied. I don't want to be like that anymore. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You've done the first part. You say, I'm going to really try. I'm going to not lie to you again. I'm going to commit to that. Great. But don't expect them to trust you the next time you say something. It's going to take effort. It's going to take consistency. You, 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 you do the work of allowing God to transform you on the inside as you transform your actions on the outside. Commit to it. Why? Out of faith, know that God will change you. You work towards it. Be committed to it. Your sin, your inequity, your transgression, that they hurt you and others, so commit to letting God change you. And know this, commit to God not just redeeming you in relationship with other people, but allow Him to, to bring testimony into your life so it can bless others as well. Right? Know that your testimony isn't just for you. Your testimony, how God has redeemed you in your life, how He's transformed you, is also to be a light to other people, to show His power and His goodness in this, so you don't keep it to yourself. And you can't show the world how you've been transformed if you lie to the world and say, I was already perfect to begin with. One, we already know that's not true. But two, perfect people who live perfect lives is not compelling to broken people. What's compelling to the transgressors is when the person who was a transgressor comes to them and says, I was wrong, and I turned to God, and I turned to my faith, and I turned to him, and he transformed me from the inside out, and now I'm not a transgressor anymore and I've been redeemed. That changes people. So to commit to this, work towards redemption, build a testimony, earn it as much as you receive it. Both are necessary. You can't change you. God can change you. God can redeem you. But work alongside Him. So how do we respond to guilt? Confess your wrongs. Now, we're messes and messers here. We get it. All of us have done things that are wrong. We will continue to struggle with this in this life. You've done things. Don't be afraid. Confess it. You've got things between you and God. Tell him. He already knows. He's not going to be like, because he's good and he loves you through all, all generations. So talk to him about it. But if there are people in your life that you have wronged, the first step is to confess it. The second thing you've got to do is repent from bad behaviors. So the things that you're doing in your life, spiritual life, that you know are against God, it's, it's not what he wants you to do then commit to saying, God, I'm going to change. And might this could be the thing, God, help me to want what you want for me to want. That, that might be where you begin, but I'm going to commit to that. I want you to change me from the inside out. I want to make an effort to live my life according to what you want because I want to love you. But it's also the people in your lives, those that you've hurt, commit to change. Commit to transformation. Don't just say, I'm sorry. Say, I'm sorry I've done this and I'm, I'm working at change. And to the best of my ability, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be perfect, but I'm committed till I get there. Repent from bad behaviors, and then work towards redemption. Look for not just what's happening today, but what God can do. There are things in your life, and so many people are like, well, God will never accept. I'm going to come to church once I have my life cleaned up. <laughs> Good luck. None of us got our lives cleaned up. We have a God who's cleaning us up. That's why we're here together. 
But also, you know, God doesn't just change us just for our own good. He does it so we have a testimony. And it's the same thing in our marriages and our friendships and our coworkers and all the things that people we work with. When I've sinned against somebody, I don't deserve their forgiveness, but forgiveness is needed. And so if I ask for it, I'm going to work towards not just making it there so my life can be better. Let's see what God can do and redeem this. You know how many people have come to faith because they've had a Christian come in their life and actually transform and change, and they're like, wow, I didn't ever think you could be this way. And open up their heart to God, and now you have generations that follow after them are on a whole different spiritual path. You have no idea how God will bless faithfulness. So turn to him, and with an eye towards this, let God turn the awful things to something amazing. Now here's this. David had an affair with Bathsheba. That baby died. Bathsheba had another baby. That baby was King Solomon, the greatest, wealthiest, most wise person. God redeems. And not only that, Solomon had children, and those children had children. If you go down enough generations, there is Jesus. God can redeem the worst things you've ever done into the greatest things, and only he can do it because our Lord, our Lord is majestic. And that's who we serve. So how do you apply this? First thing I'm going to ask you to do is these aren't your connection cards, by the way. It helps me to know what you're doing so I can pray for you. But could you memorize Psalm 105? Because to have the courage to actually repent is going to be hard. I want to give you that courage. So be courageous to know that you can ask God, not because you deserve it, but because of who he is. Next thing, why don't you meditate on Psalm 51? I think this is a sad song that you're going to identify with. It's going to resonate in your soul, and it can lead you to cleansing and transformation. Something else you might want to do is confess and repent. If you've got sins that are happening in your life right now, don't hold on to them. God is not fooled. Just bring it to him and then repent. But also, if you have people in your life that you have wounded and hurt and you know that maybe there's a lot of good excuses as to why you did, they deserved it. You still did wrong. Confess and repent, right? Maybe the commitment that you have this week is, also, I've done that, Aaron. Work towards redemption. Don't give up on it. David wasn't transformed in a day. It took time. And neither are we, but God can bring about redemption, blessing that you can not even possibly fathom. If you ask David, through this adulterous, murderous affair, the Savior of the world's going to come, he never would have thought it. Just let God work. But you work alongside him and say, God, I'm going I'm to allow you to take this broken thing and take the shame away from it and turn it into blessing. So keep at it. That's sometimes the motivation we need. Now, of course, if you're here this morning and Jesus said, you're Lord and Savior, you need forgiveness. You have sinned, you've fallen short, you're disqualified for the kingdom, right? You have twisted his righteous ways, you have transgressed, and you have actually violated what's right. Well, you don't deserve his forgiveness, but our God is wonderful. He is good through all generations, and he loves you. And you, just like David, could be saved by God's grace through faith. We put that in Jesus Christ and your Lord and Savior. And if you need to take that step to receive his forgiveness and the first steps of transformation, then I just implore you, do that today. Be set free from the guilt, right? So you can be born again and step into the life of transformation. If you need to make that decision, I invite you to come forward and talk with me after the message. Uh, then uh, I can help you take those steps. All right, for all of us, we have commitments to make. Please put those on your connection card along with your prayer requests and drop those in the offering basket as they're passed along with your tithes and gifts. Let me pray for you to make these commitments. Heavenly Father, you're good through all generations, and that's why we have faith. So take us today through this 
as we handle and, and face our own guilt, our own depravity, our own transgressions, Father, thank you that you don't just kill us just through the law, but you've done something much better, is that you offer us forgiveness, you offer us transformation, you offer us redemption. May we receive that and work with you as you, as you bring glory through our lives to others in this world, to the good things that you've done, even through messes like us. Father, take our commitments that we make today, draw us closer to you in this, take our tithes and offerings, Father, to, as an act of worship, Lord, to build your kingdom, for you are, are worthy of all glory. We pray all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus who redeems us. Amen.